foundations are important. Regardless of the facade of the building or the furnishings in the structure, without the proper foundation, uh, everything else is meaningless. The Petronas Tower is, is a building in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia that reaches some 1,483 feet in the air. From 1998 to 2004, it was considered the tallest building in the world. In order for a building that tall to sustain, the engineers drew a plan and the contractors put 104 poles or piles deep into the ground, some as deep as 374 feet, making it the deepest seated foundation in the world. Today we're going, to fit, we're going to continue in this series called Someday. Now, a few weeks ago when Robert started the series, he talked about Zacchaeus. Do you remember that? And someday we'll deal with our past. And then the next week, we looked at Luke 8 and the parable of the soils. And we talked about someday we'll take our spiritual growth seriously. And then last week, we talked about forgiveness and reconciliation. And this week, we're going to talk about someday will know what it means to be rich. Now, I don't know if that was by design that when we talked about the money sermon that Robert left the country, but uh, we, were, we were having dinner with some friends last night, and um, when they found out I was teaching and asked what we were teaching on, uh, she said, uh, oh, that's great. I really want to hear about money. We really need to hear about money, and, uh, and I, hope that, uh, I hope that that's true with the rest of you today, and thank you, Kelly, for saying that and encouraging me as we uh, get ready for this sermon, but the passage we're looking at today is in 1 Timothy chapter 6, so if you get your Bibles as we get ready to read this, and it talks about a foundation for the future. Now, this is not the first time in the New Testament that we talk about a foundation. Jesus talked about foundations a lot. In fact... He ended the most famous sermon ever preached looking at a foundation and talking about one that would endure forever and one that would not endure at all. So turn with me, if you will, if you hadn't already gotten there, to uh, 1 Timothy 6. And we're going to look at chapter uh, 6, verse 17 through 19. And listen to what it says. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may not take hold of the life that is truly life. There are about 800 passages as we look into the Old Testament and the New Testament about money. Jesus himself talked about money, material things, possessions about 25% of the time. So that means that if we were going to be an example, follow Jesus' example, that we would come in here and we'd talk about money about once a month. But I think it's important that we understand the context about when this was written. This was written by Paul to Timothy while Timothy had been in Ephesus and on one of his missionary journeys... Paul had spent some time in Ephesus, and he realized that there was some false teaching going on there. So he wrote this letter to Timothy kind of as a follow-up to the warnings that he left with Timothy about this false teaching. And he said, you know, if we're going to be believers, then there needs to be some kind of physical change or some kind of uh, notable change in the lives of those that believe the gospel. And, and the same thing to the church. He said, to the local church there, 
both then and now, if we're going to live out the gospel, there's got to be some kind of tangible effort to, to our life change. And so that was kind of the purpose uh, about this. The city of Ephesus itself was considered one of the largest retail marketplaces in all of Asian Minor. So the business guys there, uh, with their trade and their business, had become very wealthy because of where it was positioned. And many of these wealthy people had uh, decided that they were going to embrace the teachings of Jesus. So it kind of left a problem. What do we do with these people that have all this wealth? And how can we make them understand they don't need to put their hope in it? So that's kind of part of the reason that, that, uh, that Paul uh, addresses Timothy with, with this. Um, now, some of you have already exempted yourself from this teaching because of what it says. Command this to the rich. Let's talk about that and let's, let's think about the perspective of that, okay? In the biblical world, most average citizens lived on what we would say is about a dollar a day or less. Okay? So here's what would happen. They would go out and they would do their trade or their job. And then at the end of the day, they would get paid. And then they would go to the market and scrape up enough food for themselves and their families so that they could eat. Now, anybody that had anything left over was considered affluent or rich. Okay? But not only in the biblical world, but the comparison to the contemporary world is this. Okay? Do you realize that America makes up 6% of the world's population, yet we use 40% of the world's resources. Do you own a car? 8% of the people in the world today, 8% own a car. That means 92% don't, most of whom can't afford one. There's a billion people in the world today, a billion, that don't have clean drinking water. 800 million people today will not have anything to eat, 300 million which are children. How much change do you have in your pocket right now? Over a billion people live in the world today on less than a dollar a day. Now li listen to this. Experts tell us that it would take about $20 billion to take care of all the water and basic health and nutrition needs for those around the world if we gave $20 billion. In 2012 alone, in America, we spent $20 billion on late credit card fees. Now, I think if you consider that, I think that you can understand that everyone in this room, this is addressed to. You know, all we have is a gift. Food, gift. Water, gift. Roof, gift. That breath you just took, it, it's a gift. And we can say to ourselves, hey, but I worked hard for my money. I earned it. But when we do that, let's look at what it says in Deuteronomy regarding that, that scripture. It says this. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember, the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. And so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your ancestor, as it is today. Yet we might work hard, but it's God that gives us the ability to work hard and be able to, to, to have the things that, that we have. Um, typically, here's some of the things we call problems in life. Bad cell phone coverage. Slow internet. 
flight delays. And my personal favorite, I just can't decide where I want to go into vacation this year. You know? So the next time they put a ban on watering your grass in your neighborhood, maybe we need to think. Now, what, I'm not just talking to y'all. I'm talking to me most especially. Maybe we need to think about all the hundreds of thousands of people that walk hundreds of yards, mostly women with jugs on their heads, just to have clean water for drinking and for cooking. You know, rich is about having more than we need. Rich is about the extra, right? There's this thing called the tolerance effect. Now, I got to be careful about this because I got a lot of pharmacists in the room. I'm looking at Terrell right now. And so he can correct me if I'm wrong. But this tolerance effect is usually used when you're talking about people that have drug addictions, right? So it, it goes like this. Someone takes a drug so they can experience a, a certain high or a sense of well-being, right? And then after they've taken it for a while, then they become tolerant to it. So then they have to take more of that drug or potentially a, even another classification of drug so that they can experience that same high or, or, or sense. So the uh, same thing happens with money right? When we make more and more money, then we're able to do things and buy things that we haven't been able to afford to do before. And very quickly, what can happen if you're not careful is that those things that we do and buy, we like because they're luxury things. And they're considered luxury because we hadn't, we hadn't, we've done without them before, right? And then we, we kind of get numb to that and we need to buy more and more stuff because we've become tolerant to the stuff we've bought. And so it's an addiction just like anything else. And we, in America, we kind of cover up that with saying, hey, that's the American dream. But there's something really more important than the American dream. And that's what God calls us to do. In fact, he uses a strong word that says a command. So let's look back into uh, verse 17. And this is what it says. Let's look at the verse. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, not to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, which richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Now, a couple of things happen. Uh, Paul, Paul writes that, that money does a couple of things to people, okay? The first thing he says is it makes us arrogant. And over time, it kind of leaves us them, this impression that we can become self-sufficient. Now, if you look at the definition of arrogance, it, it's something like this. Arrogant is that we have an inflated self-worth, okay? So, for, for most of us, when our net worth is inflated, our self-worth becomes inflated, okay? And so, what can happen over time is that we start to generalize that, and just because we're succeeding in one area of our life, we feel like that we can succeed in all areas of our life. In fact, because we've got a big bank account, we assume that we're smarter, better looking, and even more competent than people around us. Okay, a lot of you shaking your head, you kind of you get that, right? It's because see, money can blind us to who we really are. Um, the gospel says that we're justified by grace. But the default mode of our hearts are that we're self-justified. And when you mix financial prosperity, success, 
with self-justification, what happens is it's this sense that, you know, we can rule the world. And, and it's very, 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 very dangerous, right? So there's this guy named uh, Bernard, uh, I'm sorry, this, put it up. He's an early church father. His name's Bernard of Clairvoy. And here's what he says. To see a man humble under prosperity is the greatest rarity in the world. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. Uh, money also has a way that we can start uh, putting our faith or our hope in money instead of God. Now, Andy Stanley just wrote a book. It's called Be Rich, and I would recommend it to everybody in the room. It's only about 150 pages. It's an easy read. But it really, really helps us understand how God calls us to use the wealth that we have today. But he tells a story in the book that I thought was, you know, it, was, it, it spoke to me. I hope it will speak to you. But several years ago, there was a church secretary, and her name was Ella. And Ella was a source of joy for everyone in the congregation. You know people like this, right? She had a sense of humor that really uplifted the morale of the staff. The children especially loved her because she'd call each one of them by name, and she would give them candy from a bowl that she had on her desk. The young people would seek her out on Sundays because they just wanted to talk to her because it made them feel good about themselves. But one day, everything in Ella's life changed. Okay? She, she, she stopped having that warm smile on her face. Her sense of humor was replaced, and she adopted this matter-of-fact conversation. She even, um, she even got on to the children for being too loud, which was not her at all. When they would call her name out, the, out down the hall and they'd want an enthusiastic response, sometimes she would not even respond at all or she'd just grunt at them. She had just become ornery. So finally, one of the little boys says, Mom, what happened to Ella? And the mother goes on to explain that Ella's husband, after 30 years of work, had lost his job, been laid off, and, and along with it, he was only 11 months before retirement. And uh, he lost his salary, he lost his benefits, he lost his retirement, he lost everything. Uh, and this was heartbreaking, and it was heartless. But the economy was tough, and a lot of other companies were doing the same thing. Okay. So what had happened, Ella felt betrayed. She can't believe that somebody would do something like that to somebody in her family. You know, her, her worldview was shattered. And along with it, her joy was shattered also. Can you imagine? You know, they weren't millionaires by any means, not even close. But as his retirement approached, she started counting the days thinking about what it could be like after he retired. She'd continue to work for the church another 10 years, and then he could volunteer alongside her, and then their life would really have some meaning. Okay? Now, Ella was a solid Christian. But somehow, over time, her hope had migrated from who God is to wealth. And it happens like that sometimes, doesn't it? Before we even realize it. She still had hope in Christ for her salvation. She couldn't hope for anything else. Now, financial things are very important. Um, you know, your retirement, your bank account. You know, God calls us to be responsible about those things in our lives. He does. But we've got to be careful 
as we accumulate these things, that our hope is not associated with it. Because as easy as it comes, it may go. Now, let me ask you this question. I'm asking myself too. What is it that makes you feel secure today? Is it the equity in your house? Is it your job, your salary? Is it your stock portfolio? Or is it really your relationship through, with God through Christ? Is that what gives you security today? Now, there's nothing wrong with having wealth and positions in themselves, okay? Um, wealth and, God doesn't condemn us for having things. In fact, God is the provider of all things, and he gives us those things. But where the problem comes in is when we put our hope in those things. Because, listen, God made us for so much more than just enjoying our stuff. And so we're missing out by not being generous. Uh, let's, let's move to the next verse. It says, verse 18, it says, Command them to do good, be rich in good deeds, and be generous and willing to share. Okay? Now, this whole concept of do-gooder, it doesn't have a very positive connotation in our world today, does it? In fact, if you look at what it says in the dictionary, I looked it up, this is what it says. Someone whose desire and effort to help people, such as poor people, is regarded as wrong, annoying, and useless. Now you see how, how our society has twisted that? And what does Paul call us to do? He calls us to be do-gooders. In fact, the, the British band Pink Floyd addressed this in their, their song from their album Dark Side of the Moon called Money. You'd know it if I played it. But it says money. It's a hit. Don't give me all of that do-goody-good bull and I'll let you finish the rest of it. I mean, that's what our society has placed in what a do-gooder is, okay? But God, but God he calls us to be um, generous. And, you know, generosity was the hallmark of the early church. A few weeks ago, we talked about membership. And in that talk, we, we brought out the verse in Acts 2 where it talks about the, the first church and how they gathered their things together and how they were generous and how they even sold some of their possessions to make sure that those that needed something had it. And I think we need to take uh, kind of responsibility uh, like they did for those that aren't in need. You know, but there's got to be, um, there's got to be a reason that we're called, we, we got to have a, a motivation for that. There's, there's a guy named Kent Nurburn, that's an American author that said this, that was really, um, it impacted me. True giving is not an economic exchange, it's a generative act. It does not subtract from what we have, it multiplies the effect we can have in the world. About two years ago, Arizona State University did a study on what motivated people to be generous. And they, they talked to Muslims, they talked to Christians, and they talked to believers and non-believers alike. And most people that were generous by nature said they are generous because they felt an obligation to be generous because of the things that they were blessed with. Okay? But there are a few people that said that they were motivated simply because of the love of Jesus. Now, I'm not saying that we don't need to be motivated because God does bless us. And that, not, that does need to be some motivation. But our ultimate motivation of why we're generous needs to be because we understand how much God loves us. About a year ago, I read a book by J.D. Greer called The Gospel, uh, Rediscovering the 
power that made Christianity revolutionary. I think that's the subtitle. And uh, it really, really impacted me. In fact, it impacted me so that for the last few weeks, our small group has been going through this book. It's been great to hear what some of them say about um, uh, some of these thoughts. It's, it's, it's been a lot of good conversation. But in the book, there's what uh, is called the gospel prayer. And after I read this, I have tried to pray this every day for the last uh, few months. And it's really helped me understand um, the Christian life and generosity, just doing it over and over. Sometimes we have to be wrote about things for God to really speak in it. And so um, I want to share this with you because I, I think it's a very powerful, powerful prayer. But it says this, in Christ, there is nothing that I can do to make you love me more. Now, that means doesn't matter what job I got, you're not going to love me anymore. Doesn't matter what's in my bank account, you're not going to love me anymore. Doesn't matter what I do to serve the church, you're not going to love me anymore because he loves us regardless of what we do. And then it goes on to say, in Christ, there is nothing I have done that will make you love me less. Not my sin, not the way I've disappointed you, not how much money I give, nothing I can do will make you love me less. But then it says, but it's your presence and approval, God, that I can find everlasting joy. And, and let me tell you, you need to say that over and over so you can start believing it and experiencing God's joy in your life. It's not that new job. It's not that new car. It's not making an A on that test. It is truly God's love for us that gives us that joy. Now, all those other things, they can give us some happiness. But happiness sometimes doesn't last very long, does it? It's joy that God has built us to really, really need. And that's the way he gives it to us. And then here comes the generosity part. As you have been to me, so will I be for others. Once you really understand what God has done for you, that he's the giver of all good things, that he has loved us so much that the sacrifice that he did with his son was unbelievable. Once you understand that, then generosity flows naturally. And he says, as I pray, I will begin to understand your compassion by the cross and your power by the resurrection. And that's where I really, really fall short because I understand his love, I think. But I don't always understand his power. And he calls us to do things that are hard things to do. Hard things to do. But we got to realize that he hasn't got the power inside of us. That the Holy Spirit is inside of us. It's the same power that he used to raise Jesus from the dead. And that is a powerful, powerful thing. And we don't tap into it. To, to nearly enough. And then he concludes with this, verse 19. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. And here's what I think Paul's trying to say. If we heed his words, if we listen to what he says, then we're going to understand what life's all about. Not this life, the life true life. Did you notice in verse 17 it said this present world? That meant that Paul understood and thought that there was a world past this one. He's not alone. You know, 97% of Americans think that there's more to this life than this world. There's one in the afterlife. 
And Paul tells us this from a foundational sense. If we want to build the foundation for the life, not life now, but life forever, eternal life, then our status in that has something to do with our generosity while we're here. Not only will it protect us from the side effects of wealth that he warns us about, arrogance, putting our hope in them, those type things, but it builds up for us a foundation for, the, for eternity. Now, this concept is not new. Jesus talked about it a lot. I just don't think we talk about it enough. So I hope this week as you go home, you'll think about this. You'll read this passage. You'll ask God to speak to it, to you from it, and, and really, really see just how well off and rich we are with what God's provided us with. And I hope he'll call us all to be generous. You know, the DNA of this church has to been to be a generous church. We can't be a generous church unless the individuals that make up the local church are generous people. And it's my prayer that you will understand just the wealth that we have and you'll look for ways to be generous. Would you pray with me? God, I just thank you today that, that you are a God that is the provider of all things. And when it seems like nothing's going our way, we're running out of things that you always provide for us. And as Topher prayed earlier, even in this provision, um, if something is trivial about where we're going to meet, you made provision for that. And we are so thankful for that. But God, it's our prayer today that we want to become a more generous people because you command us to do so. And we want to understand that really true hope and true, true joy is found in your presence and your approval. And as you have been to us, God, we want to be to others. And we will learn to measure your compassion by the cross and your power by the resurrection. We love you and thank you for loving us. Amen.